All right. As you can see at the very top, if you printed out the, the thing or, or you're looking at the little worksheet, there's this very first question that comes up. And I think this is important for us to think about. When you come to scripture, when you're reading on your own or you're reading um, like we are collectively here or in, in a sermon, do you read from a place of trust or from a place of suspicion? And, and I don't say this like you're wrong if you do one way or the other, but I think it's really important for us to know how it is that we come to the Bible. So there are a lot of pastors and scholars and Christians around the world who come to the Bible and believe it exactly as it is written in English, right? Like exactly in this translation that I'm holding, that's exactly what I believe to be true. And that would be called a hermeneutic of trust. Now there's others um, like myself that really try to lead from a place of believing that the original way that it was written is what happened and the original intent. So Genesis was not written for history, but for what it was intended to be, I trust that it is that. And then there's a, a other people that I, I trust very much as people who love Jesus, who are suspicious of what's written. They don't believe that some of the events really happened the way that they did. They think that um, people were trying to make themselves look better they were had agendas um and i'll be honest wherever you come from it's really okay if you're honest with yourself about how you come to this book does that make some sense if you never address the fact that okay i'm really suspicious and god has to prove himself when i read the text if you never address that with yourself you're going to have a lot of trouble everywhere in scripture and if you never acknowledge the fact that i just believe whatever's written to be true, the same thing. We'll run into some pitfalls. So you just need to know where you're coming to, to the Bible from. Hermeneutics is just a word for studying, um, the way that you interpret. And so there's a hermeneutic of trust or a hermeneutic of suspicion. And it's just good for you to know, okay, I'm at a place right now in my life where as I come to the Bible, I'm coming from a place of trust or I'm coming from a place of suspicion. And that's just going to inform the way that I read it. So what is, the, what is the, um, I'm sure everybody's maybe heard the phrase, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Would that be reading with a hermeneutic of trust or suspicion? That would be, so this is a little bit of a spectrum, right? That right. would be the very, very far end of hermeneutic of trust. Okay. Um, that's the one that always worries me. <laughs> yeah, and I would say either end, if we're at the very, very far end of either one, it's really hard to work with that. It's really hard to read the Bible next to someone um, there. Because like what we're going to look at today, we're going to have to make an educated guess at when Galatians happened. That's really hard to do with someone who just says, I trust whatever it says, because it doesn't say where it happened. So we have to make an educated guess. Now, someone who's on the other end and says, uh, I really struggle to believe anything in the Bible. That's also really hard to work with when you're reading the Bible. Um, 
right? But most of us are somewhere in them away from those two ends. And it's just good to locate yourself. That's, that's the whole point of that question. All right. And then the other one, I, I feel a little more strongly matters um, in a different way. Does your beliefs inform scripture or does scripture inform your beliefs? And there's going to be points where both of them happen. Okay. Because there's going to be a point where like for myself, I believe that God is good. So when I come to some of these war texts in the old Testament, where it seems like God is violent and mean, my belief is that God is good. So there must be something behind that text that is culturally different, or I might be misunderstanding or so in that way, my belief informs scripture, right? But if my belief only informs scripture all the time, um, that can be a little dangerous. I believe if we're somebody who is Christ following, that scripture needs to inform our belief. Because probably our, our upbringing and our culture and our past pastors and even our present pastors and spiritual leaders, they give us beliefs that may not be scriptural. Our culture gives us beliefs and it might not align with the Bible. And, and right now we're in a culture um, that holds on to our belief tighter than we hold on to anything else. And um, if you're at that place where you feel like 90% of you is your beliefs inform scripture, I would invite you to just, at least in this hour, kind of open up your hands a little bit and let scripture speak and let God speak through that. Does that one make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. That's the only like heady questions that we have. All right. There's a, the verse that is unrelated that I've, I've been thinking through that does inform what we're talking about. It's Hosea six, six. It's on your sheet. Uh, does someone want to read that for us? Sure. I will. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Hosea 6 6. Thank you. I mean, this is an Old Testament prophet, but the, Jesus quotes this. Jesus brings that back into his ministry. I believe this is what is at the heart of what's going on in Galatians. I believe this is what's at the heart for us right now. God wants us to love him steadfastly. This is a Hebrew word. If you want to write it down, it's H-E-S-E-D, hased. It's my favorite Hebrew word. And it means, um, it means steadfast love. It means mercy. It is this broad, giant word describing God of, of the, his orientation towards us. The very songs that we sang this morning at church, right? about his reckless love, about him pursuing us. It's this consistent faithfulness that God has towards us. And he desires that back from us, not just our sacrifice, not that we kill another lamb or that we give some grain. He desires that we really know him, not that we put some incense on the altar and just go through some things. And so even in this, this is not us just doing the right thing by opening up the Bible. 
but this is us trying to grow in our deep love of him and our um, our knowledge of who God is. Okay, so that's kind of been my prayer for um, that's been my prayer for these Sunday nights as we do them, but particularly for for this one. All right, so we're finally into the the bulk of the stuff. And if anybody has a question along the way, let's ask. Hopefully this is from now on more dialogue-y, okay? So we're going to start with Galatians 1, 11, and 12. That is in your notes as well. Um, if someone wants to read us that verse, that's the one we highlighted last week. I can read that. For I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel that was proclaimed by me is not of human origin. For I did not receive it from a human source, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Con. You're welcome. Okay, so we're going to look at where Paul got this, okay? And we're going to go back in the series we talked. Sorry. <laughs> That's really weird. Uh, we're we're going to go back. Um, two chapters from where we probably would think of going. Uh, I want to invite you to open up your Bible here to Acts 7, 51 through 60. For context, this is Stephen. We know Stephen's the, the one who is selected to care for uh, the widows. He's one of the seven, and he's not just clearing plates. He's testifying who Jesus is. He gets... Um, and he gets pulled into, into a religious court. And this is the end, the very, very end of Stephen's speech and what happens to him. But the person we're paying attention to is Saul slash Paul. Okay. Of course, Stephen's the one speaking and having all this happen. But I want you to imagine, um, remember Saul is one of the, members of the Sanhedrin, most likely. He's one of the powerful people who is doing this to Stephen and whom Stephen is talking to. Okay? So if someone wants to read 51 through 60. I can read. Thank you. Um, I have the New Living Translation. You stubborn people, you are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? But your ancestors did, and so do you. Name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah whom you betrayed and murdered. You deliberately disobeyed God's law, though you received it from the hands of angels. The Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation, and they shook their fists in rage. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily upward into heaven and saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. Then they put their hands over their ears and drowning out his voice with their shouts, they rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. The official witnesses took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. And 
and Saul was one of the official witnesses at the killing of Stephen. Thank you. Okay, that's a rough chunk, right? I mean, we just, you just read somebody die. That, that's pretty, that's pretty rough. Um, I'm going to make an assumption that isn't said specifically. It says that Saul was there as they were killing him. I'm going to make the assumption that he was there for the speech as well, because it reads as if, to me anyway, as if the speech happens and as soon as they hear this, they kill him, is how it reads to me, okay? So with that assumption that, that Paul is there for this entirety, well, and he's one of the ones against Stephen at this point, what would Paul have seen? We have to use our imaginations here a little bit. Um, what is he seeing and hearing and taking in? I mean, he's like seeing blood. Yeah. Yeah, you know. he is. And he's okay with it, right? Yeah, which is weird. Um, yeah. I mean, he thinks he's on God's side. He's he's seeing he's seeing blood. And people yelling probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe in favor of it, I mean, right? Not right. Not stop it like, oh yay, whatever. Yeah. Right. Uh, an inhuman thing. What is um, he? If, yeah, go, Mike. If, if we're assuming that he's at the at the the for the speech, then he's then he's being confronted with a um, an interpretation of his history in ways that he probably would disagree with. Yeah. Because it's all being it, it's all being told. It's all a history of of for Jews. And it's being reframed towards the end, all through the, the lens of Jesus Christ and what Christ had to do, and why that and why that's so important now. Mm -hmm. It's his. It's like we talked about um, last week. It's his testimony, mm -hmm. and it's and it's in a lot of ways implicating all those folks that are right. listening and implicating Paul. Yes. I mean Saul, but I, I'm just saying the word Paul because that's eventually how we know him, right? Yes. Yeah. What does Stephen say that he is seeing? Son of man. Yeah. Never. So son of man is a term that we don't use, right. but son of man is clearly a, a term of the Messiah. Okay. And and one, this is a little bit of a side note, but I think it's important for us. In Judaism, this is called Second Temple Judaism, okay? This era that Jesus lived in. In Second Temple Judaism, there was a belief that you could be a Messiah and not be divine. Messiah and God didn't mean the same thing. And they even thought there might be more than one Messiah. There might be a priestly Messiah and a prophet Messiah, a prophetic Messiah. So the fact that Jesus came as the priestly prophetic Messiah, who was also divine, that's part of why the Jews were so mad at him. There, there was no, the Messiah was not divine. That's why Mary was cool with Jesus being a Messiah, but really tripped out about him being God. 
when when he would make claims about being uh, the son of God, right? So that's a little bit of an aside, but I think that's important for us to know. So yeah, uh, Stephen's looking up and he's seeing the son of man. And right here it says the son of man standing at the right hand of God. Now, if you've seen the son of man written in scripture a lot, he's usually sitting. If you think of the phrase, right? He's usually sitting at the right hand of God. Well, uh, if you know the name Augustine, which people have different feelings about uh, St. Augustine, but Augustine drew attention to the fact that if the son of man is standing, that is him being an advocate and you sit as the judge. Hmm. And, and that's just in the culture then. Uh, I thought that was an interesting point that, that Augustine made there. And we see that he is standing. So he is, that would portray that Jesus is divine and advocating on behalf of Stephen right there. Okay. Anything else you all want to? I have a question. Yeah. So is there a significance to where um, the official witnesses took off their coats and laid them at the feet of Saul? Because that, I mean, it's put there, and I just wonder if there, is there something culturally that that means, or? Um, let's, let's see what you guys think. I'm going to look it up as, as we're talking. I have a, I'm, I get to cheat. I have some resources sitting next to me. Oh, good. Um, so let me look, but what do you guys think? Sort of like they were doing a Palm Sunday thing. You know, laying the feet before Jesus walked through. I don't know if he was just the young ones. We supposed to watch their coats like a coat check or if it's like well, he's he was, important. And so he watched. He, ha, he was important. Okay. Um, they kind of he, he was a leader already. Um, I, I do know that. I wonder if it has something to do with the Jewish law about um, shedding of blood and clothing. In the sense that you, you have to, because um, they had the ritual cleanings and things like that, that they had to observe. Okay, so what, what this... This book is by L.T. Johnson. It's a commentary. And it says here um, that there's some irony that normally Stephen would be stripped of his clothing. And instead, it's the ones throwing the stones that take off their clothing. And they lay it at uh, Saul's feet, which would suggest that he was a leader. He was the leader in opposition of the one who's being stoned so that the clothing is placed there. He's a leader. And we see already by uh, chapter eight, verse three, that Paul is operating that way. You know, just three verses later, we see. Some other, comment some other commentators said, the loose flowing cloak, which was worn as an outer garment, would have impeded the free action of their arms and had to therefore be laid on, on one side. 
because they were following the law, a law as in Deuteronomy 17.7. And that's an interesting point here is they think that they're following God's heart, right? Back to the Hosea thing. Like it's not this obedience to law. It's not sacrifice. That's not the point. The point is this steadfast love. The point is knowing God. And in their trying to be obedient to God, they stone somebody to death and, and celebrate that. And then we see that this great persecution bursts out in the very next verse. Okay. All of this is relevant because of chapter 9, verse 1 through 9. So if someone wants to read through this, this is probably where we were all expecting to go, but I think there, um, I think we'll see some parallels. Where we go? Okay. Which chapter, Matt? Uh, chapter 9, verse 1 through 9. Okay. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Thanks, Mike. All right, what do you see in here there? The three days. Um, yeah, I was going to say the three days. Yeah. The three days, similar to Christ, mean death, burial, and resurrection. Mm -hmm. So I find it interesting looking at Stephen's prayer and his last words of do not charge them with this sin. And I'd never really thought about this before, but it's, um, it, it's like a way of answering Stephen's prayer where God is not charging in a way that is vindictive, but, um, but, you know, standing as the judge there when Stephen is martyred. And so finding a way to make it right by um, showing Paul his, the error of his ways. And then, I don't know, I just, I, I keep connecting back to that scripture here, seeing um, Stephen's prayer. And then here Jesus is coming to show Saul the error of his ways. Yeah. Good. So there are some scholars I, I trust who firmly believe that what Saul sees here is what Stephen saw. 
that he's seeing the son of man standing at the right hand of God. That this vision is the same vision. Now the words are different. It's not Stephen talking or Saul talking. It's Jesus speaking and, and saying, why, why are you persecuting not Stephen, but why are you persecuting me? Now, this might seem like we're spending like way too much time at these two moments. But if we go back to the verse in Galatians, he said, Paul said that he was not taught this by any human source. He received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This New Testament that we have, the, the beginnings of it, but also like all the fuel of the entire stuff that Paul wrote and did in the book of Acts is in this moment. And then I believe from this moment, Paul did some innovating and Paul did some, um, some really good, uh, what, what's the word that I'm looking for? Some more theater word, um, improv. He did some improvisation on like, what does this look like in light of this situation, in light of this situation, but the moment and, and the, like the New Testament, as we have it, I'm not discounting the things from other voices or the gospels, obviously, but these letters are originated here. He's really clear on that in Galatians and other points. This didn't come from the church in Jerusalem. This didn't come from somewhere else. This, this came from this divine moment, this revelation from God that then in those three days, I believe he did some processing. He knew the Old Testament. So I think he did some work of who was Jesus now. It, it was a point of his belief now in Jesus informed all of scripture, you know, where this was the big thing that changed everything that he had read that he had learned. But this is a really important moment for us to chew on because whatever he saw and went through in these three days determined the rest of his ministry. If we're trusting that Paul experienced what he said he experienced, which I don't think we have a reason not to, unless we're questioning all of scripture, which People do that. That's okay. Does that make some sense? Well, he didn't see for three days, so maybe because his ears were open more. Yeah. Than, because, you know, people that say when they're blind, or they hear differently than we do. They pay more attention. They feel. Um, so I, there was a reason, of course, that he was that way. Yeah, I think that's huge. And, and we know, like, if you've ever been like in an accident where you're stuck in bed or a hospital bed afterwards, or you had something traumatic and then you're sick or something, you think a lot in that time, if you can, if you don't have a concussion, like you think a lot and reflect a lot. Um, I even do if I just have the flu, I think through everything in my life. Um, I'm coming up with new theories on everything because I just have downtime. Well, here he had this dramatic encounter, which I, I kind of believe he's scholar. I believe he saw Jesus, and I think he saw Jesus as the Son of Man. 
meaning he saw the divinity. He recognized that this was not just a man named Jesus, but that this was the divine Messiah they had been waiting on. And I believe that everything that he had read before kind of sped through his mind in those days. And he left this moment. We don't know exactly what it looked like when, uh, when he went out and came back, but we know that he was a radically transformed person and the Holy spirit was working through Saul like this transforming lives, like minutes later, weeks later. So I'm curious if we think back to the, the uh, postures for the night and the one that I'm thinking about in relation to what you're saying, Matt is, beliefs inform scripture or scriptures inform belief and so it sounds like what you're what you're you're saying is in between the lines that we have to use with our imagination and wonder what god's doing is that maybe god used because peter was a i mean because paul was a pharisee he was learned um he had a lot of what we would call biblical knowledge and now he's had this encounter, this, this, this encounter that has blinded him. And he's thinking about all this stuff. And it's, it's the scripture, it's the scripture that is informing him and changing his belief. Yeah. Well, and I also think this belief that now maybe Jesus is, and I don't even think he was like, maybe like Jesus is the son of man. Oh, that belief now changes all of scripture. And then if you know when something like that clicks, then scripture begins to inform your belief right back at it. He probably read verses like Hosea then totally differently. Oh, I get it now. Mm -hmm. I, I had it memorized, but I didn't understand it. But now all of a sudden I get it. It's why we can go back to the Bible over and over again. And new things are highlighted and jump out at us. And then our beliefs change. And then as our beliefs change, we go back to scripture and scripture changes again. Um, I might've just muddied it. I get excited. No, I, I don't think so. I think, I think that's a good way to put it that, that as, as, as the spirit works on us, as we grow in our faith, that we, we then go back and maybe our hermeneutic is reading more with trust and it's more in line with how we can see Christ in all the pages of scripture, whether it's old or new. And that hermeneutic that involves Jesus then reframes what we were taught to make it more in line with hopefully what God is meaning. Yeah. Here's what I think is particularly dangerous. If our beliefs are set in concrete, they're going to crack. And if our understanding of scripture is set in concrete, it's going to crack. Our beliefs need to be changing because we don't fully know God yet. We don't know all of, I know the Hebrew word has said, but I don't know the fullness of his steadfast love for me yet. And so I need to continue to be stirred so I can know God more. Not so I can become smarter, but so I can know him more. So I can respond with more love. And I need to do that through scripture because that's one of the ways that God reveals who God is to us. 
And so even my understanding of scripture has to continually change as God brings something about, or as I meet different people who help me see scripture in different lights. The other metaphor I think is the house of cards. If, if you, if you share something with me, that's so rattles one of my beliefs and it yanks the card and then everything else falls. And so it's almost like there needs to be, and I don't know if this is, I don't think I was taught this much or heard this much, but there needs to be a humility that we hold our beliefs with so that the spirit can keep working on us and conforming us more to what Christ looks like. And then we can, and we see that as we read the pages of scripture. Yeah, I think that's good, Mike. Okay, on chapter seven and nine, do you all have any comments or questions? So we are, um, I made a, a choice for us to teach as if Galatians happened at about, um, at about Acts 12 in the missionary journeys um, that are here at 13. The only two options are that they happen in Acts 16 or that they happen at Acts 13. And I just, I could go into the reasons if we're interested, but I chose to teach this series as if it happened in Acts 13, which means that these Celtics that he went to are from what's called Southern Galatia. And it happened in that journey of Acts 13, 13 through 14, 23 as opposed to the Northern Galatians of Acts 16 through 18. Particularly, I, I did that because I believe that this interaction at Galatians 2 happened at Acts 11. I just threw a ton of verses at you that might feel exhausting, but I think it kind of matters the order of these things. So I think this interaction that we're, we read this morning that we're going to read in a moment I believe when that happened in the book of Acts was at Acts 11, when we see uh, mine is highlighted the church in Antioch. We're going to read it in a moment. Um, I believe that's where it happened. And then shortly after that, Paul was commissioned to go met the South Galatia Galatian church. Um, after that, his rivals came in and taught he wrote the letter to the Galatians and then in Acts 15, he and the rivals went to Jerusalem together to go hear from the Jerusalem church, which side the church was on. Cause the rivals were going around everywhere, teaching the other thing. Does that make some sense for everybody? The timeline I'm kind of proposing. If you don't care, pretend I didn't speak for two minutes there. If you do care, hopefully that was a little bit helpful. I'm just trying to slot. I know we all think different. Um, I sit and think for like, so I study for like 20 hours before we start a series because I want to know where it happens in the book of Acts. And then I don't say it because 99% of the people don't care. But if you're one who does, that's where I think it is.
No, that's cool, Matt. Okay, thank you. Do you have a chronological Bible that helps you work through this? I do, but I don't necessarily believe that it's accurate. So I, oh. I kind of, <laughs> I mean, I don't think I'm smarter than them, but I, I kind of do some other work too, to try to figure it out. Um, okay, let's, let's look at the, so that was, I'm proposing that that's the background of Paul coming into this argument, okay? His background in this, this new faith is this radical encounter with who God is in Jesus Christ. Okay. And then he, he describes in the letter to the Galatians, this action in Acts 11. If someone wants to read it, it's on your sheet. Uh, Galatians 2, 11 through 14. I'll read. When Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood self-condemned. For until certain people came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But after they came, he drew back and kept himself separate for fear of the circumcision faction. And the other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not acting consistently with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Galatians 2, 11 through 14. Thanks, Mike. Okay, this, is, this could be a little confusing. And I was talking to Mike a little while ago. This whole series we're talking about how there's room for everyone at the table based on faith in Christ alone and nothing else, right? And then the context of it is an argument where Paul tells Peter he's wrong. And he's, not, he's telling him he's wrong because Peter is not making room for people at the table and Peter's in leadership. So people are following Peter's lead. I hope that was clear this morning. People were leaving the, the lunch table and no longer sitting with the Gentiles, no longer feeling like they belonged. And it was causing a split in the church where some people were following the rivals and Peter in believing that you needed um, these other things. You needed to follow the Torah. You need to be circumcised, eat, eat according to the Torah food laws. And the people who were believing Paul who was saying, it's all based on your faith alone. We're justified through faith. That's it. Does that make some... I hope that was clear in the... Okay. I'm getting nods, so I'm going to go with that. All right. So we know how Paul came in, and I think it makes sense that he would be that passionate, right? Because he had this encounter with Jesus. Just like for us, a couple chapters. I know that time has passed. But this defining encounter with Jesus that would inform everything. And then he goes and meets a leader of the church who disappoints him, who, who leads people that, that particularly Paul feels called to go to. And I think, sadly, we all know what it's like when a church leader disappoints you. I mean, I, I know my grandfather gave up on Jesus and the church, my grandfather who helped raise me. And he gave up on him because he once saw his pastor leave a bar with two women 
he was drunk and neither woman was his wife. And he was like, I'm out. If, if that's what pastors are, I'm out. And he never came back around. As far as I don't know, it's hard. I don't know everything. I was in middle school when he died. But I remember that and remember coming to faith myself as I'm hearing that story. And like, it's tragic. And here Paul sees a leader doing what he sees as one of the biggest failures. Because the, the thing that is striking to Paul, Paul had devoted his life to persecuting anybody who announced Jesus. And then now he devotes his life to say, Jesus is the only thing, nothing else. You don't need anything else. He was the expert at living this sanctified Jewish life. And now he's like, none of that's worth it. Faith is the only thing that matters. And Peter's living in affront to that. Um, but I want us to see how Peter got there because Peter's not the villain in this. There isn't, I, I'm neither one is, but I want us to see a little bit how Peter got there. So I want, I want to invite you open up your, well, your Bible's probably open. Look at Acts 10, 11 and 12. And we're not going to read all that, but just kind of look through it. Look at the headings. If you have any highlights, if you don't, it's okay. But what is Peter's context coming into or out of Antioch, which is the end of chapter 11, remember? What is his context first with the Gentiles? Right around this chapter, that kind of 10 through, you can go up to 15 if you need to, but that's pretty far. 10 through 12. It seems like he's having a similar experience to Paul, even though I don't know if Paul's necessarily they're identifying it because peter is having all of the jewish side of his upbringing and being in that expression of faith turned upside down by god like with cornelius in the in the vision of the 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 blanket of all the different types of food especially all the forbidden foods that Jew, the kosher foods that jews weren't supposed to be eating he's saying no you can now partake of any of it i mean that's that's got to be a, a huge shock to the system to be told that every little thing that he's been taught to observe since he was young is now okay to not observe like the Gentiles who weren't raised that way are now. So I yeah. know that's, that's gotta be playing in his head. And it is to me, not even thinking about it till just you saying it, it feels like it's the same thing that Saul and Paul went through what that vision and all that time in those, in those three days. Yeah, that's good, Mike. That's good. What, what else are we saying? Big picture like that, or even more specific, if there's anything's good, that's great. So this is where he went to the home with Cornelius. Yep. And um, that was a really big deal because he was um, a Gentile. So yeah. um, before Jesus, this would have been a really, like, not a thing you'd, he would do. It'd be against the law. Okay. So then, and that goes back to the vision that Mike talked about. Yeah. I, I do wonder, so where Paul is condemning him so much. And so had this already happened, this vision where Peter already stood up here in Acts where he, it seems like he stood up about his vision. 
So did this vision happen like pre-Paul talking bad about Peter? So Peter and this little meal where they confronted, where Paul confronted Peter Mm -hmm. is at the end of chapter 11. Okay. We're arguing mostly that Acts is chronological, mostly. So that's after the deal with Cornelius. Particularly Acts 11, 27 through 30 is where Peter and Paul would have both been in Antioch. Okay, so let me, can I highlight just a couple of verses in here for us to think through Peter and the Gentiles first, okay? In the, in the vision from God, God says, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. That's Acts 10, 15. We also might know that is what you, God calls holy, you cannot call unholy. Clean, you cannot call unclean. This is the vision of the food. Uh, all the animals. If we go on to Acts 10, 34, Peter just gets into Cornelius's house and says, I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is accepted to, acceptable to him. He would not have said that in Acts 9. But he's saying that in Acts 10. If we go to verse 47... He says, can anyone withhold the water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And then the very next verse, so he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they invited him to stay for several days. So he sat and ate and slept in the home of a Gentile. And then if you look in the next chapter, I'm not going to read it all, but if you look at Acts 11, 12 through 17, Peter is having to go before the leaders of the Jewish people and defend what had just happened uh, both the Jewish people and the Jewish Christians. I'm sorry, but you know, like they're all there. Very similar to what Stephen had to do back in Acts 7. What yeah, now he's also in front of his his fellow church folk. But yeah, he's he's talking to religious power here, right? And he's talking to the people who are later called rivals, who are later the Judaizers. He's talking to the people who we who are written in Galatians 2, who come up to Antioch. Because they're having, challenge. they're having a hard time reconciling their new, the newness of being in Christ with, with everything they have learned all their lives. Right. So this very next question, what's the context of Peter with uh, the Jewish and actually even more than Jewish, I would say the Jerusalem Christian authorities. Let, let's say it, let's say it that way. Okay. The, the men of James, as was found in Galatians 2. What is the context with these uh, Gala uh, 
Ju- Jerusalem Christian authorities. Well, we see that they, they want Torah observance, right? What happens in, in chapter 12, 1 through 5? Oh, he escapes prison. Yeah. And his dear friend is killed. So the Jewish authorities kill James, right? Mm -hmm. Peter's imprisoned and then escapes prison. We get to Acts 15 and he's he's brought before the entire council of Jerusalem to defend what he did with Cornelius. He's in hot water over baptizing a Gentile before. Now, it would be fine if Cornelius was baptized after he was circumcised. But he didn't wait till he was circumcised. He said, who am I to withhold the waters of baptism? Because the Holy Spirit was already present. Okay. So look on your sheet again at Galatians 2 for me. I'm sorry. I'm getting super excited. I hope this isn't boring to y'all, but (laughs) this is like the most exciting stuff to me. Look in the third line if you're looking at the notebook uh, in the sheet. It says, but after they came, Peter drew back and kept himself separate for fear of the circumcision faction. He left the table because he was afraid. And we're and and our timeline again is Acts 13. 11. Acts 11. Oh, this thing. Okay. So this so event gun- happened at Acts 11. Yeah. So he might be gun shy because he's been put in prison and he's been raked across the coals and said, everything you did was wrong because you did not. You did not first have them follow all the Jewish rituals, all the things that we've done for our life. You simply said that it was enough for them to profess Jesus and then baptize. Right. And then Paul came after that and condemned him for something else. That's what it sounds like. Then did Paul come after like, so he, Peter. No, he left the table out of fear and that's what Paul condemned him for. But Peter wasn't just being racist. He wasn't just being mean. He was afraid. I, be, I believe he was afraid for his life. Of all of his belief, just got upset, just got turned over. Go ahead, Eric. You were saying something. So, but this, the, the whole Peter coming into the Galatians was before he was put in prison, right? Yeah, right before. Yeah. Before he was put in prison. Yep. But. Yeah, and what I'm arguing here is nine or ten and early. Uh, I'm sorry, chapter ten. His whole belief set is upset again, so he has to reread scripture. He baptizes people. I think before he realizes what he just did, and then the Jerusalem Christians call him to say publicly what he just did. But I, I'm, I mean, I'm a little confused because in, in 11, they, after he explained what he did, 
the Jerusalem, the Jerusalem Christians are sitting there rejoicing in it. Uh, in, in, in that whole, uh, in 1118, they said, when they heard this, they were quieted, made no further objections. They glorified God. Mm -hmm. And so if he has the backing of, it sounds like he has the backing of the Christians there. Why then would he be fearful of them? At, you know, at the end of the chapter. No, I think that's a good, so you're talking about verse 18 here, right? Yeah. Okay, so then we get to 19, and we're seeing the Jewish leaders. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that took place over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, and they spoke the word to no one except Jews. Um, they go in, Hellenists is another word for Greeks, proclaiming the Lord, the hand of the Lord was on them. It's starting to spread, and power starting to move. So I do believe people are in awe by verse 18. And then as the movement starts to spread and power leaves Jerusalem, they send people to go investigate it. It says in verse uh, 26 down here, verse 26 is a year long. For us, it's like 18 words or something. Yeah. But that's a year long. So between that's Paul and Barnabas there. Yep. In Antioch. Yep. So between Acts eleven eighteen, and and I, I know we're jumping around here a little bit, and Acts fifteen, there's enough of a movement within the church to oppose what Peter did and what Paul is proclaiming to nearly split the church. And though Acts 11 18 and acts 11 29 to us are just 11 verses away enough time has happened that there's some there's some earth shaking there's some questioning that's happening they must have lost their faith <laughs> well yes and, and and i think part of what i'm asking us to do is like can we empathize? H have we been in a situation where our understanding of something has shook enough that we wonder what else is going to shake? Oh, yeah, that's why you get scared. You know, something becomes familiar or feels like something that happened before in their life or your own personal life. It's like, oh, no. This feels so familiar until they get scared. And they got scared. We get scared. I, I agree with you, Connie. And I think I think that's part of what we're part of what we're seeing seeing here. Eric, you look confused. Um, yeah, I just I, I'm not seeing the I'm not seeing the reasoning for Peter's shift. Peter's shift. 
well because because i mean he he seems he just he has the he has the backing of the church in jerusalem and and then he just kind of turns his back on the gentiles like i just i don't understand that okay so let's read through paul's account okay again and i think it's interesting that luke luke doesn't write it's not an acts right luke doesn't write about this only paul does in galatians but in paul's account again i oppose him to his face because he stood self-condemned for until certain people came from james which that would be jerusalem religious christians he used to eat with the gentiles but after they came he drew back and kept himself separate for fear of the circumcision faction the circumcision faction are the rivals. What we're calling rivals in this team. This is the Judaizers. This is the group that in Acts 15, 1 and 2, that we see are coming to force the church of Jerusalem to decide what to do about the Gentile issue. And so with these religious leaders coming from Jerusalem, Judaizers came. Are they the same people? Are they their lackeys? Are they tag-alongs? We, we don't know exactly. But enough that Peter would be afraid of the people who were opposed to what he was doing and what he experienced with Cornelius. Yeah, but Peter's already Peter's already explained to that faction though exactly what he did with Cornelius, right? And so and and after he explained to them, they were accepting of it. So why is he? I, I so I don't understand why he's now scared of them again. You know, like that just that. Do you understand that they would disagree with him? Well. But, it, but in, in Acts 11, 2, he's talking to the circumcision party. And he goes and he explains what he did with Cornelius. And then it says that they, you know, then, you know, then he, you know, they, then in 18, they made no further objections. They glorified God. And so like that, to me, that just seems like they are accepting of what he did. And so I just, I, Am I reading? Am I reading that wrong? Are they not accepting of what he did? I don't think. I don't think they had a comeback. Is it the same group of Jews? Like, is it is it the same Jews who were there that he explained it to, and then a different set of Jews that heard about it later, or were it the same? They're, they're both it, the it's first? yeah. It's some of the same people. You know, there might be some who weren't there. They're, called, they're both called the circumcision party. When my my text reads when when they who was it like when they heard about it there's a part that later it reads when where was it um I just lost it but it was it never mind I found it I'll look for it I just didn't know if it was the exact same people that heard about it later. Um, or if it was a different, so it says when the church of Jerusalem heard what had happened, 
was what mine said 22. So I almost read it as it being a new set of people that heard about it later that were upset, but. Yeah, I think we have the church leaders and we have the circumcision party. And I think yeah. there's some that are both. And I think there's some that are probably not there in Acts 11 at the beginning and some yeah. that are not, but I do think the parties are represented at both. Eric, I really feel like at Acts eleven eighteen, what we see is when they heard this, they were silenced. And I do think some of the party praised God and said, uh, God has given even to the Gentiles a repentance that leads to life. And I think some people realized what that phrase would mean and had to fight against that. Uh, yeah, I mean, that. yeah, that makes sense. I just don't see how, you know, if, if Peter's already gone up against these people once because of what he's done, I don't see how when it comes to the, the account of Galatians, now he's not willing to go, he's, he's, he's willing to go back against what he did. I, I, I feel pressured. Pressured, you know, or guilty or unsure of himself. Well, and he didn't, and in Galatians, he didn't say they're not Christian. He left the table. So by his actions, he betrayed the people. But he didn't say what I experienced with Cornelius wasn't true. He just distanced himself from the table. Like he literally pulled up his seat when those people came and quit eating with them. But that action said a lot. And what and what is what is Paul's actual charge with him? Hypocrisy, and that he's not consistent with the truth. I think, Eric, what you're saying is Paul says, Hey, I know that you stood up to everybody and said what happened with Cornelius, and now you won't even eat with them. And you ate with them yesterday, but not, and it probably wasn't yesterday. You ate with them last week, and as soon as these guys show up, you don't eat with them again. Why are you now afraid? You already did the hard stuff. I don't know that that answers it for you, Eric. Yeah, I mean that. Yeah, I mean that might be that might just be what I'm seeing. It's just that that waffling from Peter. If we um, know Peter, he's gifted at that, right? We know Peter is quick to to say say things and do things and then regret it. I mean, we've got that in the Gospels where, you know, he rebukes even Christ. Um, and I can I can Eric, I can see what you're saying about the confusion there. I guess I guess the thing that I find comfort in this is that here is a here is when when you're able to when you're able to get some help in piecing some of this together with Galatians and then tying it back into Acts, you get to see, I get to see him evolving because he, he does what he does for Cornelius. Then he gets questioned by it. He convinces some, but, but it doesn't sound like he convinces everybody, even himself. Because if you look at what Acts 15, where it, where it talked about, 
that Paul and Barnabas are back before them to talk about the, the Gentile believers who are, are the first ones that could be called Christians. Eventually, it says that it's apostles and elders, and eventually Peter does speak up. So you're getting to see this evolution and for me it's comforting because i can see myself definitely going back where i can i can sit down here and in the comfort of my home and and say i believe this and then when i'm a bunch of different people who might press me on it i i don't have the confidence or i shrink back or i revert back to some to the group speak so to in, in some ways so and i and sometimes at least in the church context, in a sermon context, sometimes it's not presented the, the complexity of the humanity of the people that we're studying and reading and thinking about. And that's what I'm seeing here based on what Matt's saying and based on what you're saying and pointing out as well. Well, and if, if we can, and, and I want to respect everybody, I said this would go till, I don't even know if you know, I said it would go till 830. So we'll be done by then. Um, but Let's go to the very last page of our outline. Go ahead and open if you want to Acts 15, 1 and 2. We're not going to read it. We kind of read it already. This debate in Galatians 2, 11 through 14 is about circumcision and food laws. But what is it actually about? That's the whole question that I want to ask today. I want us to see who Peter and Paul were getting into that moment, kind of see their humanity, and then recognize what is this actually about? Because I would argue it's not actually about circumcision or food. It, it seems more about law um, and what the new covenant with Christ and um, kind of going head to head with the Abraham covenant and those laws and that's that we really just need faith in Christ and not so much emphasis on the law. And it, yes, thank you for that. And if, if we don't have anything past Acts 15, okay, except the book of Galatians, if we don't have anything else, who decides that? Who decides what we follow where? Who makes the call from now on? Peter just baptized a Gentile. And then now we've got Paul out baptizing a ton of them. And now they're eating with them. Who makes the decisions for the church? Who decides what's okay and, and what isn't? Who has power? It seems like it's been taken away. I didn't consider it from power, but it's the, where the power had always been centered, it seems like with those that did follow the law. And so here you have two people that are taking power and giving that power to many people. So it's being decentralized. Mm -hmm. And, and there, we know eventually, I, I would argue again that they, if we're okay with this language, they improvise on what they know of scripture and what they know of God to realize that the Holy Spirit lives within all of us because that's ultimately what Jesus taught. 
So that's what everybody else eventually teaches to us. That's familiar to them. That's brand new faith. And that is like the Holy Spirit has only dwelled in a few places ever. And now God's power is so decentralized. It's in anybody who not even eats right, but just believes like that is radical and terrifying. I mean, it should be freeing, but, but trying to understand the world that we're reading, you know, I mean, this is Jerusalem, the power center. They have no political power. They only have religious power. They have no economic power. It's the only source of power that this place has is religious power. And the leaders there are coming and saying, hey, you still need us to decide what you need to do to be in. And Peter, and then now Paul, and then Paul rebukes Peter to remind him, are saying, no, you don't need that. All you need is faith in Christ and the Holy Spirit within you. How, how does that sit for you all? Living faith? <laughs> yeah, that's my thing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, it de-emphasizes things that were done, like it de-emphasizes 613 commandments, and it de-emphasizes, and it, and it brings to life Hosea 6 that says that you're going you're gonna to err on the side of, of mercy, because um, it's too hard to follow every, every single law to the to the dotting of the I and crossing the T because we have failed numerous times. And so it's a losing of control to say, say who's in and who's out. Yeah. And, and, and if I can play on that for a minute, if I'm somebody who can manage to memorize all of those commandments and then someone tells me that's not worth anything, I wasted my time. Or more biblically accurate, if someone tells me it's only worth something if I've learned of God's steadfast love and I've learned of God, well, I don't need to know those commandments to know his love or to know God. And so to that person who doesn't have the ability or the access to learn all those commandments, but they know God's steadfast love and they know the character of God, that's all that matters. And that is a threat to those who spent their entire life learning to be smart on the things of God. So we read a billion scriptures tonight to tell you it doesn't matter. It matters, but it doesn't matter. And what God div divinely reveals to you through the Holy Spirit, that's, that's what counts. And as we grow to know his love, and as we grow to know who God is, that's the point of all this. Now you all look confused. Did, did I lose everyone? It's like the end of a movie where you're disappointed by the ending. I don't know. 
I think this helped the in-depth, the background and the way it put Galatians fits into Acts. I thought that was really cool. Good. Well, let, let me give you one last term that's a little more like the beginning and then we'll close. Is that okay? Mm -hmm. Okay. At, at the bottom of your sheet, it says going with the grain of scripture. Do you, do you see that? Mm -hmm. It's by a theologian with the last name Gorman. And this is a term that I, I think is just brilliant. Um, this is a term that Gorman would use to describe what we just read. Peter and Paul and the church in Jerusalem and the early Christians had to interpret what God was doing with the grain of scripture where they don't go against what scripture points to, but they're going beyond and keep in mind their scripture was different than ours because we have what they wrote, but they were going with the grain of what God was doing going forward. That's how Peter was making these decisions and they were hard decisions to make because it wasn't, he was following a prompting within him. That's hard to do and to have constant conviction on. Paul was, Paul was recalling a past revelation and allowed a past experience to define the rest of his life. I'm not saying Jesus didn't continue to reveal himself to Paul. But that revelation was the defining one. And so then you go with the grain of, of scripture. I bring this up because we are not done innovating and improving today. There are situations that we face today that scripture doesn't speak to. Global warming. It's not directly in scripture. Stem cell research. It's not directly in scripture. I would actually argue race wasn't invented till the 1700s. That's not in scripture. Eth ethnicity is, class is. Some of these things we're improvising. What is God saying now where scripture wasn't there yet? And anytime we go against the grain, we go in the opposite direction, that's dangerous territory. But we do have to do some work of innovating in improving to go towards what God has um, to, to be able to live faithfully today. And that's a lot of what we're doing as a church, but that's a lot of what you're doing constantly. You might not call it that, but that's what you're doing as you try to navigate different, th even like Lent, Lent isn't found in Hosea. So like, how, how do we go with this in a way that's with the scripture, with the grain of scripture? How do we handle voting when that's not something that scripture talks to? We do that with the grain of what scripture says. And it seems like we do it all the time we do we just don't know it and we don't and we don't but we don't claim it like that thing that i said earlier you know the 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 bible says that i believe it that settles it and we and we 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 say that in the vein of well i don't i don't i don't bring anything in i just take the bible plainly as it's read 
and that's just not true. We've, there's so much that we bring to the text. Uh, and then there's so much that we don't always understand. Not that we want to muddy it and make it complicated to be a Christian, but we've, we've kind of made complexity a, a four-letter word when it's not. It's, it can be really helpful and it can flush things out and, and bring clearer, better, newer, God-inspired insight, I think. Right. And I think as we do conversations like we're in right now of how do we make room for everyone at the table where faith alone is what matters. Okay. How do we do that with the grain? And what does that even look like? And how was faith said it there's conversation. Is it saying the name Jesus Christ in English? Is it a baptism? Is it like, what, what is that? Do we have to say a certain prayer? Do we, all of those things, all of those discussions are not specifically listed here. That's all we're going with the grain or against the grain. As we have conversations of, uh, you know, even like across religious lines and across all of these kind of things, how do we have those conversations where we're faithful to scripture and we're faithful to the Holy spirit. And God has to speak to things that scripture doesn't because a lot of our life is not on the same exact circumstances and issues that scripture speaks to. It doesn't mean that scripture is faulty. That just means that we need to cultivate an ability to hear the God in line with who God is but hear God speak into things where scripture has not yet spoken. Does that make some sense? You already do it. I'm just trying to recognize that you do it and help you remember that like, Oh yeah, I want to trust the Holy spirit as I do that instead of other things. Um, okay. Has this been kind of helpful? Yeah. Oh, yeah. More or less. I'm going to turn yeah. this off. I um, am excited to be with you all. We are in our last week of our Galatian, of walking through Galatians, our Galatians series. And I get the honor of wrapping us up in Galatians 6. Um, but before we jump in, would you please pray with me? Father, I thank you for... Thank you for who you are. I thank you for the ability to study your word uh, together, to under to have a better understanding of how we can walk in freedom with one another, love one another, and honestly just sit at the table with one another. God, I pray that the the things that you have shown us as we've studied the book of Galatians would be things that we would continue to grow in, continue to walk in. God, I gave you uh, the words that come out of my mouth. <laughs> May they be of you. Father, I pray for, uh, for you to meet each one of us where we're at. It's beautiful that you reside in each one of our homes, wherever we are. Um, we thank you for that. And here I pray, amen. 
All right, so today, like I said, we're going to be wrapping up and we'll be in Galatians 6. But before before we read the text that we're going to look at, uh, throughout this series, I don't know about you guys, but I do really well with like imagery and analogies. So if I can like picture something, it helps me understand a passage or it helps me understand what the preacher's preaching about just a little bit more. Uh, so throughout this series, we've kind of gone with this idea of a table and the, the series we named a uh, place at the table or something like that. I think that's what I named it. Um, And so we've talked about the fact that there's this imaginary table and you all can picture, let's say you picture your dining room table or um, maybe it's even bigger than your table that you're sitting at, but it's like a huge feast of a table and you've got people all around it, right? And we've talked about that everyone has a spot at the table and the only thing that's like a requirement for a spot at the table is your faith faith in Jesus. And just that alone earns you a chair at the table. And then we kind of added a layer and we talked about the fact that everyone belongs at the table. You don't have to doubt, thank you, Mike, for uh, the digital in the background. (laughs) Um, Everyone belongs at the table. So not only does, do you have a spot because your faith in Jesus, but you don't have to doubt your spot at the table. You, you don't have to earn it. You don't have to doubt that it's going to get taken away from you, that each one of us is called to the table for a reason. And then on top of that, we talked about being free along next to one another and being free in Christ. And then last week, Matt talked about um, freedom, but he also talked about healing. He talked about that sometimes when we heal together, we can nip and we can um, cause... Uh, when you're healing, it can cause you to maybe nip at someone who's sitting right next to you at the table. So we're going to run with this imaginary table for most of my sermon. So if it helps you, just picture yourself sitting at this large table. We're all sitting there. We're all around it together. We're having a giant feast. And we're going to learn today about caring for one another around that table. So we're going to look at Galatians 6, and we're not looking at the whole thing because there's a lot in Galatians 6. Um, it is Paul's like final words to the Galatians, his final encouragements, but it's different uh, from a lot of his end of his, a lot of his letters, um, whereas he's actually still teaching in these final, these final words. So we're going to hone in on verses 9 and 10, and they read, and they say, Um, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap, if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are of the household of faith. So we're 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 looking at these uh, these verses, and it you when you read it, you might translate it in a different way. I know I have. So I read this offhand before I like really dove in to do my sermon prep and my sermon was going to go this way. And then I started studying it and I realized that my sermon had to go this way. So, um, when Paul is saying doing good, a lot of us think of like serving and all of those things are great. You know, we're serving our community, we're giving back, Uh, But Paul is actually specifically talking about when he says doing good, he's focusing mainly on like money and resources. So he's telling the Galatians to take care of those in need, take care of those who are hurting. And that doesn't just mean um, 
like doing something nice for them. He's talking about like provide for them, give them resources, give them support that they need for their practical everyday needs. So sometimes it's hard. That's hard. And so he's saying, don't, don't go re, don't go, don't grow, sorry, weary of doing those things because that can wear on people. Um, it can wear you down to constant, to see needs and to give practical support. Um, and so he's encouraging the Galatians not to grow weary of that, um, but to continue to do that. And he's, he's using this and he's saying that like that comes from the Holy Spirit. And in the verses below, he talks about um, sowing from the Spirit to reap eternal life versus sowing from the flesh. So when we're doing good out of ourselves, I think that's what causes us to grow weary because we're pouring out of ourselves instead of pouring out of the Holy Spirit, instead of looking to the Holy Spirit to provide, um, to help us provide those practical um, everyday needs. Um, so in week two, Matt mentioned a spiritual that was sung um, during the civil rights movement called We Shall Overcome. And that was actually taken from a uh, song written by Charles Tinley in like the 19, early 1900s, a hymn written by him uh, called I'll Overcome Someday. And that hymn was written with Galatians 6, 9 in mind. And his whole purpose of writing that hymn was that the world is a battlefield. But if we stay focused, we will overcome someday. And that overcoming is not an earthly thing. That harvest that we're waiting for is not earthly, but it is one that will happen in the in heaven. Like that's that is not something that we will experience here on earth. And I think sometimes, at least for me, when I do something good, there's a part of my flesh that wants a reward. Like I want a gold star. You know, did you, were you guys ever like in, when, in school, when you were in school or kids, if you're in school right now, for those of you who have gone back, did your teachers ever have like sticker charts, like earn a gold star if you do this and like student of the week and all that stuff. So I, I, uh, I really like doing the right thing if it gets me something. Um, I will fully admit that I will work for any gold star because I think that's awesome. Um, if I know I'm going to get something out of it, I'm going to really work. And I even saw that with Genevieve when we were potty training her. Like she was totally amped to go to the bathroom on the potty if she was going to get a sticker, which meant she was going to get a treat once she hit the end of that row of stickers. Completely reward focused. And so I think sometimes we can do that. If we know we're going to get a reward, we're like, sure, I'm going to do all the good. I will serve and care for everyone around the table. But it's harder when that reward is not earthly. When that reward is one that is going to come once we're in heaven. It's a, it's a harvest. It's a reward that we won't necessarily see here on earth. And so Charles Tinley's um, I'll Overcome Someday was a uh, encouragement, just like Paul's letter, to keep going, to keep focused on that heavenly reward versus an earthly one. And so then you've got, we've got this idea of not growing weary, which is, which is hard. It's hard to not get tired caring for one another around the table. 
But then in verse 10, Paul adds another layer. He's like, don't give up on caring for one another. You're not going to receive a reward here on, on earth. But now it's not just to the people who you would put around the table, but it's to everyone who belongs around that table. So he's saying no matter for the Galatians, that meant like uh, anything that would have separated them, culture, nationality, gender, a lot of things. You know, it's easy to say, oh, I'll take care of those who sit around the table who think like me, look like me, you know, um, talk like like all of those things. It's easier to say, oh, I'll care for them. Like if we pictured all of us around the table, it might be a lot easier for us to say, sure. Like, I'll care for you. I love you guys. I'm going to definitely care for you. Okay, but what if we expand that and we recognize that Paul isn't just saying the people who we would put around the table, but he's saying everyone. And so that might mean people who don't think like us and who don't look like us and who have hurt us and who um, who we don't think belong around the table, but because of their faith in Jesus, they have earned, they have not, because of their faith in Jesus, they have a spot at that table. And so Paul is saying we should care for everyone. It's not just reserved for the people that we want to reserve it for. And that, that's hard. I think that's where, for me, it gets harder But that's what Paul is calling the Galatians, and that's what God calls us to do as well. So if we're going back to that picture of our table, right? We're all sitting around it together. We're all eating, laughing, having fun, enjoying conversation. And now I'm not assuming. I know that we all have different ideas, thoughts, theologies, political views around this table. But we love one another around this table. Because we, we've taken time and we're taking time to get to know one another. But as we sit there, I want you to imagine someone pulling, I don't know who it is for you, but someone who might have hurt you pulling up a chair at that table. And I want you to imagine someone who completely thinks politically different than you and it's really hard for you to love them pulling up a spot at that table. And taking time to recognize that in this, because they have faith in Jesus, they have a spot at that table. And we are called to love and do good for them and care for them. So if we see them hurting, we don't just like wait for whoever likes them better to do something for them. But we care for one another. We don't discriminate who we're going to care for. And that, I'm not good at. (laughs) I'll be real. I struggle with that. I like to hold on to things. Like, Like, I've talked about that before. I like to white knuckle. And I have a really hard time of just releasing and letting go. Um... In fact, yesterday, Jacob and I got in a disagreement and I was going to hold on to my frustration with him until, I don't know, whenever I felt like it was time to let go of it. And um, 
and I was ironically reminded of today and talking about us all being around the table and people have heard us and serving one another and doing good for one another. And it wasn't, I wasn't giving him money. I didn't hand him a dollar bill, but God told me to go give him a hug. I did not want to go give him a hug. Okay. I was going to, he, I was going to die on this hill and he was going to come to me. But out of obedience, I went and gave him a hug because that's what he needed. That was his practical need in that moment. And it immediately broke down the wall that I had built between us. And so sometimes that practical need isn't what we want to do. But we're called to care for everyone sitting around the table. And so sometimes that practical need is what we're supposed to do out of obedience. And if we look, that can wear on us. Like that, you can grow weary doing that. And so there are things that we have to do to put in place to not grow weary, right? And that's different for every single one of us. If you go into our breakout rooms today, you'll talk a little bit about things that you can do that help you not grow weary. For me personally, it's going for a walk, spending time with God, like even if it's just 10 minutes. But it's also taking time to like recognize where I'm at. One of the things that has come out of Lent and this these moments of pausing for me is actually learning how to recognize when I am tired. Because sometimes you get tired and you don't recognize it and you keep going, you keep going, you keep going. And then eventually you break down because you're pouring out of your flesh and you're not pouring out of the spirit and you're exhausted. And so we have to be cognizant of that as well. There's so many things to be aware of. We're not only called to care for one another, but we're also called to not grow tired of caring for one another. And so part of that is recognizing where we are at, taking care of yourself. And so we sit and we care for everyone, not out of our own flesh, but out of the spirit and we meet each other's practical needs. And my needs might be different than Connie's needs and Connie's needs might be different than Mike's needs and Mike's needs might be different than Kyle's needs. And you could, you're gonna go on and on and on. And that's why getting to know one another is so important. And that's why inviting people to the table who might think they're not welcome at the table is so important reminding them like, hey, do you have faith in Jesus? And if the answer is yes, they're like, that's all you need. Come join me at the table. And we might think different and we might look different and we might have hurt each other in the past, but I'm called to care for you because you share faith in Jesus Christ and you're walking in relationship with Jesus. So, I encourage every single one of you, whoever that person was that you thought of pulling up that chair at the table, I'm not saying that you need to go and like mend all fences, but maybe be praying for them this week that whatever practical needs they have, God provides that for them. That might not mean that you personally are doing it, but even just you praying that God would meet their practical needs is caring for them.
Will you join me in prayer, please? Father, I pray for each one of us. I pray that we will not grow weary of doing good, of caring for one another, of loving one another. God, I thank you for the fact that you love us, that you care for us, that you look around that table and all you see is your daughters and your sons and you love each one of us where we're at. Father, I pray that we can love and care for one another out of that reality, that we were created in your image. It is in that that we love one another. It is in that space that we support one another. It is in that space that we care for one another. Father, teach us how to not grow weary. Teach us how to be in line with with you, Father. And here I pray, amen.